when we talk about media for coping, we're really talking about using technology to sort of address these emotional needs we have, right? So so it's not so much that like one technology is better than another or, or more adaptive or one content is better than another or more. It's, it's sort of how people are selecting to use it and work it into the, their own needs and motivations, right? You're listening to SpartyCast. Hello and welcome back to SpartyCast. I am your host, Dr. Robbie Rattan. This is the Social and Psychological Approaches to Research on Technology Interaction Effects Lab podcast, SpartyCast. I am thrilled to host our guest, Allison Eden. She's a colleague of mine here in the College of Communication Arts and Sciences. She's an associate professor in their Department of Communication, in our Department of Communication. I'm in the Department of Media and Information, so we kind of sit at different ends of the hallways. There's uh, no strong rivalry, though we do we do sometimes have uh, some social comparison you know, who's publishing more, getting more grants. But fundamentally, uh, Allison and I come from the same ilk, communication PhD, studying media technology. She studies media effects in the entertainment realm, which is a bit afar from my kind of serious games, VR, avatars focus. I focus on games more as a means to an end, whereas she focuses on games and media generally social media, television, et cetera, kind of as something that people do as leisure activities to cope with stress or to figure out the meaning of life as she'll talk about in this episode. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Dr. Eden, Allison Eden, friend and colleague for many years now. Um, welcome to SpartyCast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I'm so stoked to have you because we're shifting gears a little bit. Um, I often talk about virtual reality and the metaverse, but I actually want to come back to that once we get uh, into your research about coping with the pandemic through media use. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to this topic? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I think I have kind of an unusual background for someone who studies media. Um, growing up, I had very restricted media use. My mom thought it was, you know, going to ruin my ability to read and think critically. And I, so I was always, it was always a little bit of the forbidden fruit, like, ooh, what is what is on the television that's so enticing and exciting. Um, so yeah, that's uh, eventually many years later translated into uh, a degree in communication specializing in media psychology. So I study how people use media functionally in their day-to-day -day life and, you know, don't become mind-controlled zombies and how for most of us, we're pretty able to uh, you know, incorporate a, a good amount of screen time in our day-to-day -day life with, uh, with you know, sometimes mostly no negative effects and, and a lot of times some positive effects. So this is media use for coping is sort of, and well-being is sort of well within my my wheelhouse of interests. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I know I recently read a statistic that um, parents see video games as a, as a benefit for helping kids transition to online education. And I oh, found I that so, to be yeah. a little bit surprising, uh, but also a good news story. Yeah, media aren't all bad, 
though the media might present them in, in like <laughs> moral panicky ways. Um, yeah, I think we're fighting a lot of moral panics. I mean, I still, I, you know, thanks, mom. I do love reading. I read all the time. <laughs> But I think you could also, you know, spend some time with screens and and, and it's a, it's probably going to be okay. Absolutely. And reading can be a little bit uh, displacing of healthier activities. My kids, they're just as stuck to the books for hours at a time as they are to the video games. Like, Go out, play, talk to your friends. And they're reading <laughs> the books. I mean, it, to me, I, I don't see a huge difference, at least in that displacement. No, not really. Not okay. really. So, so you've got this background looking at uh, the positive sides, or at least the not negative sides of media use. And then the pandemic happened. And I think you, like I thought, wow, if everyone's connecting over media, we should be studying this at this moment. Yeah, well, I was really interested, um, particularly, you know, in our students who were, who were really abruptly transitioned from being face to face and in a really hyper social environment. I mean, college is an incredibly social sort of time. Uh, in our lives, and 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 suddenly everybody was displaced, um, you know, physically displaced, but then also sort of mentally displaced too, and disconnected. And um, so I and some colleagues uh, from uh, so Benjamin Johnson from University of Florida, and a, a, a Sarah Grady here at Michigan State, and another colleague of ours in Germany, started thinking, "Gosh, what is this doing to our students, and how are they going to cope?" with this this sudden change in in you know all of our circumstances not to mention sort of the stress and anxiety of living through a pandemic right i mean oh yeah there's that yeah i mean you know so there was a lot to take on there and ben was a a grad from our program as well right from our college yeah yeah he was uh so he got his master's at uh, michigan state and Mm -hmm. then he his phd was from ohio state okay so um, the Ohio State University. The Ohio State. So a team of <laughs> a team of scholars interested in this topic. And so, how did you approach it? So those of us who were involved in the project were really interested, um, particularly in how sort of these different experiences of um, stress. So not having the resources to cope with with sort of what life is demanding of you. Um, but also anxiety, uh, so sort of, sort of the the feeling of being confronted with something that's completely, you know, you can't manage it. There's not a lot of personal activities you can do to manage living through a pandemic, right? It's, it's sort of like the Titanic hitting the iceberg, like you can't avoid it, right? Um, and so we, we thought, gosh, you know, how is that translating into media use? And we turned to media we thought about media use really for practical reasons, one, because we're all media scholars, but also because you have all these students who are suddenly at home connecting um, over uh, the internet uh, for classes, um, but they were also you know, meeting their social needs via the internet. They're also meeting their recre- all of the recreational needs that we, that we were meeting via you know, sports clubs or leisure activities or dining activities. All of a sudden, we're, you know, they're all now regulated to be at the home. Um, so, so one way that people could fill sort of that giant void um, was by turning to media. So that was, that was sort of our, our main thrust was first just looking to see what people were doing. Right. And then and follow up studies, we've we've developed a lot of questions to kind of ask, how are they doing it? And what are they feeling about it? So we've got, you know, survey data, so numbers, and we've also got a lot of diary data where people wrote about sort of what they were selecting and why in a very sort of like self reflective way. So what did you find? What were people doing? (laughs) Well, unsurprisingly, (laughs) 
We uh, so we did two things. We did, we had a study right as soon as everybody went online. So we we had a, a one study that was from you know March fourteenth, twenty twenty to about April seventeenth, twenty twenty. So that first kind of month that everybody went online, and um, we found unsurprisingly that people were stressed and anxious. <laughs> they they didn't feel good. <laughs> You know, um, so what we found was that people were using a lot more media to find out information about the pandemic. So a lot of people um, uh, were turning to the news to, to find out what was going on, you know, to, to get updates about things. Um, but then we also found that people were turning to the media to connect with other people um, or to connect with people that they found themselves quarantined with. So we had a lot of people who said, you know, this has been nice because I've been able to spend time with my family watching old movies. Or my roommate and I had a list of movies we wanted to watch together, and this has given us the opportunity to do it. So there was a lot of sort of time management, so emotion management, but also time management. Um, we also saw people turning to sort of newer media. So TikTok, we, we saw a lot of people using TikTok for hedonic sort of mood regulation because it's, it's comedic, it's diverting, it's pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think what, what was perhaps most interesting is we also saw people regulating their media use to not feel bad. So, so people who couldn't hang out with their friends stopped using social media like Instagram and Facebook as much. They said, I just don't want to see what other people are doing without me. <laughs> I want to focus on myself. You know, so it's very sort of self-protective. Um, and these different sort of media use strategies led to different types of well-being. So we we saw people regulating their mood, you know, by watching more comedies. We saw people, and that, that led to, you know, sort of better affective mood outcomes, right? Um, we saw people who were sort of successful in reframing the pandemic instead of saying like, oh gosh, this is a really insurmountable problem. I'm, I'm never gonna, we're never gonna move past this as a society. I'm really worried about it. We saw people reframing it. Um, So a lot of people kind of turned away from news and turned towards other types of reframing for the pandemic, like Contagion. The movie Contagion was incredibly popular during this time period, right? Uh, To kind of reframe it as like a, uh, a narrative where we could come out on the other end, right? And we saw that that had, again, these sort of positive impacts on people's perspective, well-being, and ability to manage themselves. Interesting. So... Um, you mentioned hedonic, which is, you know, joyful, happy media use, mm-hmm. um, and then regulation, emotion, regulation, coping is that, would, would you describe that as a eudaimonic experience, which is kind of a fulfilling media experience or is it different? Um, so it's slightly different. Eudaimonic media experiences is more about like the meaning, the meaning of life and like finding mm-hmm. really meaningful things. Right. And we, we actually found really sort of different. So people that were experiencing more stress tended to lean more towards hedonic management. So they looked more to like comedies or TikToks or pleasurable sort of like mood kind of mm-hmm. like affecting things. Makes and sense. then people. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it does. That makes sense. When I'm stressed, mm-hmm. I turn to things that make me laugh. Sure. Um, and uh, people that were more anxious actually we're more likely to turn to eudaimonic or these sort of meaning in life type of mm-hmm. um, media contents. And we actually saw that that was a better strategy overall for improving well-being outcomes. Interesting. Yeah. So it was linked to just, you know, increases in, we, we used a, a human flourishing scale to measure well-being. We used a couple different mood outcomes, depression outcomes, these kinds of like self-report outcomes. So this mm-hmm. is all self-report data, but still it was really interesting to see that people that kind of tried to take a broader perspective and look at the meaning in life type of of contents rather than just the the plain hedonic that Mm -hmm. tended to lead to slightly better outcomes mentally 
Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so you're looking at mostly um, passive media, not necessarily interactive, like games or virtual worlds, right? So it's interesting that you asked that. I actually kind of thought, because I, I like playing games and I like VR as well. So I thought that maybe we would see people um, using more games. And we did see some people turning towards games, but it tended to be more of a nostalgic exercise. So people would, um, like Animal Crossing was really big uh, during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So we saw people turning to these kind of like games or Pokemon. They turned to these games from their childhood a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, we uh, we didn't get a lot of reports of people um, using a lot of games or using a lot of uh, virtual reality, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was mostly sort of streaming media. It was mostly television. It was mostly social media. That could have been the way we asked the questions, though. So I don't want to say like it wasn't happening. It's just we didn't get a lot of sort of self-report of these. Who are, who are the participants again? Students mostly or? Yep, students from Michigan State and from University of Florida. What's kind of interesting is is that we did see, so we, we collected data twice. We had that spring data, which was the the data I was just talking to you about. But then we also collected data in the fall. So mm -hmm. kind of over the November period mm -hmm. um, from the same same group. So so not the same people necessarily, but sure. still the same students from the same universities. And we found that, um, you know, overall stress and anxiety uh, decreased. Mm -hmm. So people were feeling a bit better in the fall than they were <laughs> immediately in the spring. So that was good. Um, but we did also see a lot more sort of um, awareness of time management in the fall. So in the spring, it was a lot of filling time. And in the fall, it was a lot of, oh, gosh, now I have to get back to work. Now I have to get back to school. Mm -hmm. I've got to get off of these apps. Okay, interesting. So people were worried about their media use. Yeah, they were more well, they were more worried about the time spent with media in the fall, for sure, because they were going back to their regular, regularly scheduled programming. Mm -hmm. Still, some of the media use was interactive, like Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, um, what were some of the differences? Did you ask about differences in, in the media platforms? And do you remember if there's anything that might like relate to the interactivity or the sense of presence in these different platforms? So yeah, that's a really interesting um, question. So we did, we looked at um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and YouTube um, mm -hmm. for sort of the more interactive media platforms. And this is, again, was all from sort of self-report. It was what people were saying that they themselves were using, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and what we saw was that there was a lot more, we asked two different kinds of questions. We said, what what are you using more? Mm -hmm. And what are you trying to avoid? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was like two separate questions. And what we saw was that early on in the pandemic, people were using, they basically used everything more, but they used TikTok a lot more, they used Twitter a lot more, they used Instagram a lot more than they had, you know, in the weeks prior um, to that. To, to, to going home, right? to social, to social uh, distancing. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, in, the fall, in the fall study, we see that people were avoiding Instagram, avoiding Twitter, avoiding Facebook. So sort of as the pandemic progressed, people really started avoiding a lot of these social media platforms. And most of them said it was because of fear of missing out or being concerned about what people were posting on these sites or um, you know, being unhappy so they, they said things like, I'm stuck at home and I'm seeing my friends out partying and I don't I don't approve of that behavior. I don't like it. It makes me feel bad. So I'm avoiding these sites that show them doing that. Um, but TikTok use stayed pretty high. Uh, people weren't avoiding TikTok. They were just avoiding these other social media platforms that they had turned to more earlier on in the, in the, in the pandemic. Interesting. I wonder if a bit of that had to do with the political climate of the fall 2020 as well. 
right? Like, yeah, I think so. I think you're, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think people were nervous about the election and about what, you know, their friends and colleagues were saying about things. Uh, so we did see like a media avoidance coming up really strongly in the fall, but it was over that sort of US election period. We did, um, we did surveys on similar topics, looking more at loneliness. And mm. we found, this isn't published yet. Uh, I hope it gets published eventually. Um, but we found that of those platforms, you didn't mention Snapchat, um, but we Oh found- yeah, you know, at Snapchat, um, let me take a look at Snapchat. Snapchat looked, I think, similar to, um, Snapchat and Facebook looked really similar. Oh, interesting. Which I found, yeah, I found that interesting as well. Um, and so that's- Instagram- Instagram and Twitter, we saw like a lot more use early in the pandemic. Like they were seeking, people were seeking it out. And then uh, by by November, people were really trying to avoid both of those platforms. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, both Facebook and Snapchat were kind of like equally sought out and avoided early on in the pandemic and then avoided later on. We had a different metric, um, just looking at amount of use and self-reported loneliness. And we found Snapchat to be associated with the least loneliness. And we hypothesize that's because it's it's a it's more of a personal interaction, right? You snap right. that with your friends, whereas you you scroll through TikTok, um, right. which makes it more hedonic. And maybe the Snapchat is more eudaimonic, though we didn't frame it in that way. Maybe that maybe that's how we should write this paper. You know, we did ask about specific emotions. So, like, how does how much does each platform make you feel specific mm-hmm. emotions? So we asked for hopeful, connected joyful, stressed, depressed, and guilty. So three Mm -hmm. sort of positive emotions and three sort of maybe less positive emotions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we do see Snapchat um, was very consistent in having a large connected component. So when you talk about loneliness and Snapchat use, that makes a lot of sense to me because that's what people are reporting, right? Yeah, yeah. They feel connected with Snapchat. And it was, Um, was that higher than uh, for the other media? Yeah, if I look at if I look compared to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, for sure, Snapchat had a, a much bigger sort of connected component. Okay. Um, or TikTok too, as well. Um, yeah, TikTok had a much bigger joyful and hopeful component. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see sort of stressed, depressed, and guilty showing up for Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, yeah Twitter was at the bottom of our barrel too, in terms of uh, loneliest. But uh, are we, were you saying TikTok was high on connectedness or low? Um, it was it was lower on connectedness. Okay, it was, okay, yeah. that's what I would have. Snapchat expected. was definitely the most. Instagram was second. It looks like, and okay. then sort of Twitter, TikTok ish. They were kind of in the same. One thing we tried to get at in our study, uh, which maybe we're cutting this data because I just made this scale up, <laughs> um, and so it's not validated. But the idea of the strength of the social bond, right? The the social mm-hmm. capital you have, um, the strength of ties with the people with whom you're communicating. So I noticed in myself, and and I don't know if this is true for you or your participants, that like like you said, watching movies with my family, I was doing Zoom chats with family members who, these are stronger ties, but they're extended families. They're not, you know, the the immediate super strong ties. Um, But being able to connect with those people in that, I, I guess, medium tie range is different than connecting with the weak tie Mm-hmm. You know, people in my Facebook network who I haven't seen in 20 years or just people I'm following on Twitter, right? So I would imagine the stronger the tie, the more um, kind of stress management there is um, helping me cope. Um, 
probably you, in the connection. You see any, yeah. And then that probably differs by medium too, right? Like on TikTok, it's a bunch of randos. <laughs> um, well, so. I think we have to think about the motivations for using each platform too, right? So so in our samples, they were really cognizant. They were really self-aware of the motivations, right? So they mm -hmm. said, look, I go to Twitter to check out what's happening, like mm -hmm. what's going on with the pandemic, what's going on with the election. I go there to check these things, right? It, like a really strong surveillance motive, if you can think of it from you know, theoretical perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. And um, whereas TikTok people go on there to be entertained, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like straight up, I just want to be entertained. Yeah, I want to, I want to see people dancing and doing goofy stuff. Like that's it, you know. Yeah. It's whereas, not about, like, sort of. Yeah. yeah, it's not about you know. I think friends. you know. Yeah, it's not. It's not about friends. It's not. But whereas, like Snapchat, you really have to reach out and we didn't you know we didn't ask about zoom so much um although because like most people were saying that they were using that for work mm -hmm. not for sort of pleasure mode and we were really looking for like you know leisure time pleasure yeah. motives yeah like what what are what are you doing when you don't have to be on the, on the clock when you don't have to be on zoom what are you doing right yeah, yeah. um and and so we didn't see a whole lot of um that going on hello listener it's me but I'm an avatar. You probably learn about avatars in this podcast, but you can actually try them out, not just in video games, but in spaces like Zoom. I'm using Zoom to record this right now. This avatar I created with Ready Player Me. Remember in episode a long time ago, I talked to Timo Toke, the CEO of Wolf 3D. That's the company that makes Ready Player Me. I took a screenshot of myself with my camera, a selfie, I should say, and I created an avatar automatically, customized it in their app. Then I posted it in Animes. That's the software I'm using right now. They are the sponsor of this message and they are giving a 50% discount on subscriptions. You can try it for free, but if you want to subscribe, you enter Sparty Lab as the discount code. That's S-P-A-R-T-I-E that's -E, Lab. So you can use a Ready Player Me avatar, like I mentioned. You can also upload your own VRM or live 2D models, or you can make avatars right in animes. For example, you could use the Doge avatar. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I mean, it might've seemed like like a, a strange thing at first, but but Dogecoin is, is still making bucks. Um, but you could use the Doge avatar or one of their very cool anthropomorphic animals, such as the Fluffo, the raccoon, totally detailed. Look at this, it's so responsive. People use these types of avatars to stream or go to Zoom meetings or go to, go to court cases and say, I am not a cat. There are also two-dimensional avatars like this raccoon or more anthropomorphic avatars that aren't even animals like this cute pandemic virus right here. Corey, Corey, the COVID. Maybe this one won't win you too many friends. I really like Kathy. She's quite a catch. You could choose whichever avatar you like. And then you could even apply some of the concepts like the Proteus effect or other phenomena related to avatars in the workplace to your uses of these avatars uh, based on what you've learned in this podcast. And once again, if you wanna try it out, Go to Steam, download Animes, try it for free, and then if you want a subscription, you can get 50% off for a limited time by entering Sparty Lab in the discount code.
check it out. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Allison. I feel like maybe there's a theoretical model in the works in the future, categorizing these media platforms and motivations and types of people you communicate with. Um, and of course, this research is happening at a, at a unique point in time, but maybe there are more generalizable kind of trends in, in these types of media platforms that will last beyond the pandemic. I don't know. Well, that that's sort of what we argued in our in our in our papers. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, yeah, this was at a really specific time point. We were really looking at well-being and media use, like at a at a really specific point in time where where there was a lot going on that was really you know unique to sort of March 2020, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that a lot of the sort of motives and outcomes that we saw um, generalized to other people. So so for example, I have another paper. Um, with um and it really is, it's a sort of a, a series at this point um with matthias hofer mm -hmm. um where we look at um uh sort of the aging process and how people select different types of entertainment experiences um over the course of the lifespan mm -hmm. and uh, we framed it in a lifespan development model um selection optimization compensation model which is really a development it's really a, a sort of a lifespan model about how people age and what activities they they take part in as as they sort of mature and 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 go from like a young adult to an to an older adult, right? Mm -hmm. And so with Matthias, we we did things like we compared a, a sample of younger, you know, eighteen to twenty four year olds with um, older adults uh, uh, who were who were experiencing, you know, significant so uh, sixty five plus, but the majority of our sample was actually eighty plus. It was people who were uh, experiencing significant health declines, many of whom were in you know assisted living or nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found was that. Um, there was a lot more sort of compensatory media use. So people, when they're older, they can't do the things that they used to do all the time. So they tend to use media more for sort of compensating, like for loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, my friends aren't around. My friends, I can't talk to them very often. So now I turn to television and it's less um, gratifying, right? So it's mm -hmm. not as positive an experience. It's, it's compensating for what I can't get. Whereas when people are perhaps have access to a lot more potential options, we see that um, one, they tend to use media more for for sort of uh, really optimizing their well-being, and um, the the fewer compensatory motives that they use for for media selection, um, the the sort of the, the better off they are. So so I think if you think about sort of media selection as part of a whole lot of strategies that we can use to optimize our well-being, um, and you can see that we sort of can use media. You know, one thing with entertainment that's that's neat is you can kind of like trade it out, right, to mix and match your motives. Like that's what makes it a super good coping tool is you yeah. can select what you want um, based on what you need at the time. Um, so if you think about it more in sort of like a repertoire of potential coping strategies, it makes a lot of sense that people are <clears throat> being strategic about what they're turning to and and that eventually, you know, the outcomes are going to be positive because we're all pretty sophisticated and expert media consumers at this point absolutely <laughs> um i speaking of zombies your mom was worried about <laughs> you being a zombie we my wife and i watched a lot of zombie movies oh, right at the beginning of the pandemic and okay. that was totally a coping mechanism i i don't there must be some sort of theory here maybe um oh what's the one about the mortality Mortality uh, salience. Yeah, Mar you know who, who, I don't know if you've ever talked to, um, what's his name, uh, Clayson. Uh, he's uh, He's got a, the, a recreational fear lab. 
So he studies how why people turn to horror movies, and he just had a, movie, a book come out called The Very Anxious Person's Guide to Horror Movies. I believe it's, I'll have to send you the title. And um, I got it because I'm a very anxious person, right? Or I'm a very nervous person, and I can't watch horror. So like for me, that coping strategy would not work. <laughs> but a lot of people reported what you did, right? That they they were turning to zombie movies or like contagion like i said number one movie and i was yeah like, oh i could even thinking about it made me stressed out right so it's a very different uh way of coping with stress. so some people sure. like to meet it head on right so like mm -hmm. the, you know so i think you know what people who are doing that they're like gosh this 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 pandemic is really stressing me out but like i can cope with my fear of horror movies or zombies so i'm gonna i'm gonna emotionally attack my fear in this realm because yeah, it's safe and yeah. i know it's gonna be okay Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There, there's that yeah. horror element too. And then I think also now that I, I ponder it a little more, there's a bit of uncertainty reduction because yeah. many zombie movies have this narrative of a pandemic, a worldwide mm -hmm. pandemic. So thinking about like, well, how do these things really play out? These Hollywood productions have thought a lot about what it would look like. And I found myself drawn to the stories that took a macro stance, not just like a few people surviving, you know, a, a bunch of zombies trying to kill them, but what it's not contagion um it's the other one that i think brad pitt is in it and oh, world war z yeah world war z takes a kind of high level like mm -hmm. this is the cause this is how we're trying to stop it this is society falling apart um so in com contrast to that <laughs> the covid19 wasn't that bad right <laughs> yeah and so it's interesting because we did have some people who were saying like look i sought out horror movies and i felt better Right. So that's kind of like this Clayson argument, the recreational fear. Like I, I can deal yeah. with my fear in a safe environment and it makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then you have like sort of my emotional coping perspective, which would say, like, if you're already stressed, like or if you're already really anxious, don't don't watch something that's going to make you more anxious. Right. So. Yeah. So for me, when I watch a horror movie or when I watch a, even a suspense film like my, you know, I think my my husband got frustrated because I was literally only watching like reality competition shows like baking shows and home improvement shows like I was the ah. lowest possible level of stress and arousal interesting interesting <laughs> you so, know I was well, like I don't I don't want to see it I don't want to see it I've already I'm already dealing with it I want to sure. be sure so what do you think uh, what's the the moderating factor that would predict whether someone goes to where that like meet it head on and think about the stressful thing in this entertainment context or escape it entirely and try to cope by not thinking about it like is it there an individual difference you said maybe uh anxiety level of the individual um is that the main one or are there others what do you think well there are different coping strategies right so one sort of like an approach oriented coping strategy like mm -hmm. approach oriented emotional yeah. coping strategy like i'm going to meet it head on i'm going to deal yeah. with this right whereas the other is perhaps avoidance, avoidance. <laughs> yeah yeah right? absolutely and, that, and that's we we see that and i mean a couple a bunch of other you know media scholars have studied coping coping styles and mm -hmm. media selection you know sylvia Knobloch, yeah. uh westerwick down at ohio state uh, mm -hmm. robin nabby both have looked at sort of what we turn to under what kind of coping strategy and i think i think we're that's what you're seeing they're kind yeah. of vision. yeah yeah that's interesting okay so let's bring it back to vr and avatars because sure. that's what i have to do uh, <laughs> with every podcast episode that's so, right. We can, do, we can do VR. We can do avatars. So, so imagine a world. Uh, I don't know. Five years from now, eight years from now, where 
presumably lots of people have VR headsets or they're wearing augmented reality glasses and we're surrounded by highly immersive media as an option of, in our regular media diet. Maybe we don't see a lot of people turning or we didn't see many turning to that type of media use now because, or during the pandemic, because they're just not as widely available. But when they are available, what do you think would be different about media use habits? Or I guess, how would these same trends be manifested um, in coping with the pandemic, but in the metaverse, um, so to speak? Well, so it's interesting, yes. I actually had a paper um, with Grace on, uh, we, we, you know, the um, IEEE VR conference is a big conference for mm -hmm. like uh, academic practitioners, uh, academic researchers and practitioners of VR. So the, the conference was held in, hubs last year in in mozilla March. hubs the, the virtual environment yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah sorry Mar yeah so it's a 3d uh, you know immersive immersive virtual environment um and there was also an option to log in on um just like your your computer screen right so you could either log in with your glasses or you could log in uh, with you and, and um so we we actually talked to we have one paper out already on this topic and then we have another one coming um but we we interviewed the people who were at the conference about sort of the benefits of logging in via VR uh, versus flat screen mm -hmm. and um, um, found that, you know, people who were very comfortable with VR and had access to the technology um, really enjoyed it uh, in the immersive sort of world. So I, uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I could see that translating entertainment wise, right? So, um, you know, I, I mean, I have a, a headset at home because I studied this kind of stuff and my kids really enjoyed it. They did a bunch of simulation games and uh, you know, we played a bunch of, you know, Beat Saber, just dancing games just for fun. But um, one of the, the things that we saw in the conference uh, data was that people uh, got fatigued from being in sort of this immersive environment um, mm -hmm. and that they didn't like being disconnected from sort of their home environment. Mm -hmm. So to a certain extent, some of this technology, even when it's connecting us virtually, it might be removing us from connection sort of face to face. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something that we have to consider as researchers, like when is it optimizing versus when is it getting in the way of yeah. uh, the kind of emotional effects that we're looking for. That said, like for purely from an entertainment perspective, um, you know, there's nothing like dancing in a 3D immersive environment with other people like they're just, you know, that's great. That's amazing. That's an experience that you can have from your house. Um, very safely, no, pand no pandemic, no germs around, right? That is very reminiscent of, uh, you know, dancing at a club with your friends, right? But no one's going to step on your feet either. That's true. You might trip over a, a dog or, or something or a kid. Ah. <laughs> so I do think that we're going to see that, um, you know, becoming more prominent. I mean, you can look and see the the VR adoption and, and, and even AR, you know, if I think about augmented reality games like, like Pokemon Go, right? Uh, we saw Pokemon Go change certain settings um, during the pandemic to make it easier to play from home without having to leave your house and play. And I think that that was really smart because a lot of people would put it down, picked it back up again, and we're, we're playing it pretty obsessively, uh, myself mm -hmm. and my family included. Personal end of one experience there. But, uh, but I think that, um, you know, you have to, again, it's part of a strategy. Right. It's part of like a holistic life strategy about how we manage our time and what we spend time doing. And when it meets people's needs 
in a in a positive way, I think you're going to see adoption and continued use when it starts to provoke goal conflict uh, and difficulty in meeting multiple goals. So like in the, in the case of our conference, people wanted to meet their academic goals by joining this conference, but then they had to take care of their kids or mm. log into the office or they lived across um, the world. So they were logging in at midnight. And, it, you know, so when you see that kind of like goal conflict happening, then people stopped using the media. And I think that you know, not to be like, everything's the same, but I mean, I think VR and AR have a place in that repertoire of like coping strategies and in that repertoire of entertainment or even work-based sort of things that we do, but it's always going to come down to sort of how functional is it for the use, for the individual. Absolutely. So, so it's not going to replace the good old, you know, doom scrolling on whatever <laughs> platform you, of choice, but, um, but it, there might be a place for it. Where do you think where would the best coping happen in VR? Um, so what what context or need for approach or avoidance? Um, I guess I guess avoidance, right? If you really want to shut yourself out from the pandemic, like <laughs> literally, yeah. um, like you said, cutting your your connection to face to face off would help. I mean, I think that's where we see it right now is people using it as distraction, right? Because it is immersive. It's a really good distraction, right? Because if you have the goggles on and you've got the headset on and you've got the headphones on, like you're not engaging with anything around you, right? You're you're withdrawing yeah. from everything. So I think that that's kind of, um, you know, as a distraction tool, I think it's really effective. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you talk about comparing it to like doom scrolling, right? One of the reasons so many people get into these doom scrolling spirals is because you can do it with one hand, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like you can, like a lot of people are doing multi-screening, multitasking, like they, they're watching TV and scrolling with their, the, 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 the phone in the hand. So I think the ability to, to do those things together, like contributes to the, the amount of time that we spend doing it. Whereas with VR, because you're sort of removing yourself from any environment except for that immersive environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see people who will dedicate space and time to that activity. And only that activity. And only that activity. Right. But that's what I'm saying, right? It it can't be like, you can't be doing two things at the same time. Now, you know, I say that enough, you can think about, you know, we, we, a lot of times we will cast what people are seeing in the VR onto a TV screen or something. Mm -hmm. So it can be much more of a social activity. That's something we do in our family, you know, so we can all watch and see what somebody's doing. Yeah. um, Yeah. And, and the other turns. side of it um, that I think of is the the quasi augmented experience. So you're in the mm-hmm. headset and you've got multiple virtual monitors, but you can actually use your real keyboard because you can see it. It's not pass through; it's digital. But but then there could be pass through, or I I could I could doom scroll with a you know I could have a little window in the corner um, as part of the UI the the operating system UI where I can still look at my mobile phone screen, but I'm in VR playing the game but at the same time as running the uh, the other softwares. We haven't gotten into that kind of parallel processing or multitasking in VR much as far as I've seen, but I can imagine a software solution to making it harder for us to take the headsets off. Yeah, I could, I mean, I could too, especially when you talk about things like glasses. Um, and I think the, 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 the lower the barrier is to, to being in that environment and the more able you are to be sort of have that split screen sort of idea. Um, I mean, I think one of the reasons people are so um, concerned about like multitasking and screen time is because like I said, you can do it while doing other things, right? 
Um, before that, we were worried about having the TV on while people ate dinner. You know what I mean? So it's, there's always something we're concerned about. But, um, you know, I think if you have like the AR goggles um, or, or glasses on uh, or you have the VR glasses, so you, you have something in your periphery that you're attending to at the same time that you're attending to the main task mm-hmm. or switching between. I think I think it's both a hardware and a software issue, right? Is kind of yeah. what I'm trying to say. Like, I yeah. think part of the part of the issue is that hardware is separating you from what's going on around you. Part of the issue is 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 like you said, software based. Is that we haven't seen a lot of sort of like the goal of a lot of VR um, technology is to immerse you, right? Is to make you feel present in sort of a surrounded environment. It's mm-hmm. not to let you access Twitter while you're washing the dishes, right? Like there is just different purposes. Sure, sure. But if I'm washing the dishes and it looks like I'm slaying alien germ monsters and I can still yeah, my, scroll I mean, on my Twitter. I think if we and... see that, <laughs> I think that would be great. I would love an app like that, right? Like I might do the dishes more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you make it, you make, I mean, but that's the whole... When we talk about media for coping, we're really talking about using technology to sort of, um, you know, address these emotional needs we have, right? So, so it's not so much that like one technology is better than another or, or more adaptive, or one content is better than another or more. It's it's sort of how people are selecting to use it and work it into the their own needs and motivations, right? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So right now we say don't text and drive. In the future, it'll be don't play VR games and drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a lot of games have things like, especially games on the phone, they have things like, are you driving? Like, don't play this while you're driving, yeah, you know, yeah. which you know, I support for the record, but, but you know. <laughs> but you can listen to podcasts while you drive, and maybe someone's listening right now to this podcast and driving, and I hope you're doing so safely. <laughs> yeah. uh, Allison, thank you so much. This was great. Um, I think, I think, do you have any, any last uh, bits of insight for people who we've, we've got a range of listeners. Some of them are interested more in the psychology of game studies and media effects. Um, others more interested in the metaverse and VR. So anywhere that they should go look for more information or? Um, well, uh, we do have uh, you know, a media psychology program at Michigan State. So for people that are interested, we have a really good research network here. Uh, you know, I mean, Rob, Robbie's part of it. Uh, I'm part of it. We, we have a lot of people here who are interested in these questions and, and having a lot of fun exploring it. Uh, so, so I would check out the, the media psychology research group. Um, my research lab is the Tarmac lab, the theoretical and applied research in media and cognition. Uh, lab here at Michigan State. Yes, it's yeah. kind of a mouthful. It's almost as big of a mouthful as the Sparty cast. So <laughs> not we'll, quite. But we'll put a link to your there. lab in the notes too. And yeah, uh, sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Allison. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sparty Cast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and hit like and tell someone, tell a Shibu Inu not to doge this episode. So sorry. Thanks to our production team, Taylor Halterman, Kyle Takpe, and Mia Berghart. And thank you for listening to SpartyCast. Hope you come back next time. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.